Hello, um, welcome. Um, tonight meets day a discussion of memory. I'm Nikki Lam, the Artistic Director of Channels Festival. I would like to acknowledge that we are gathering on the tradition. feedback? <laughs> I would like to acknowledge that we are gathering on the traditional land of the Kulin Nation and I would like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and the future and extend my respect to the Indigenous people here with us today. Welcome to Night Meets Day, a discussion of memory. So my voice is a bit funny, choking on pollen. Um, first of all, I would like to say a few thank yous. Um, thank you and Pavilion for hosting us in this beautiful venue tonight. And our supporters, Australia Council for the Arts, the University of Melbourne, Creative Partnerships Australia and the City of Melbourne. This is the first of Channel's international satellite event. In the past 12 months, Channels and Foundation for Art and Creative Technology, FACT, in Liverpool, UK, have been developing a new co-commission for emerging video artists and filmmakers. Responding to the themes of memory, time, space, and, and identity, the FACT and Channels Artist Boosery receive over hundreds of submissions from all over the world. With the support from our judging panel, ACME senior curator, Sarah Tutton, Australian artist Soda Jerk, UK artist Shauna Illingworth, and is that working? Yeah. And Wari Mabeth, the winning artist who will be announced next week will receive £2,000 towards a new work. During our year long development, we have discussed a lot about memory the science of memory, memory in historical context, and the functions memory has in placemaking in the 21st century. What is the role of memory in visual culture? How is it represented? And what kind of impact it has to our collective sense of community, of identity? What is cultural amnesia? Tonight, we hope to unpack some of these big questions, specifically in the context of Australia. No pressure. May I introduce our wonderful panel tonight? Dr. Sarah Wiltz author and researcher Tony Birch, artists and collaborators Stephen Rall and Seeing Troll. Sarah is currently the Associate Dean for Engagement and Advancement in the Faculty of Arts at the University of Melbourne and a Senior Lecturer in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies. Sarah has taught and published widely on Australian migration issues as well as histories of nature in 19th century Britain. She has a particular interest in cultures of mi migrant memory. Tony Birch is a poet, short story writer, and a novelist. Tony is the author of Shadow Boxing, 2006, Father's Day, 2009, Blood, 2011, shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Liter Literary Award, The Promise, 2014, and his most recent novel, Ghost River. Both his fiction and non-fiction has been published widely in magazines and anthologies, both in Australia and internationally. He's currently the Bruce McGuinness Research Fellow within the Mundani Baluk Centre at Victoria University. Stephen Rell's interdisciplinary practice responds to the cultural landscape, creating networks of interconnected signs and symbols, reflecting upon both medium specificity and the medium of objects and cultural semiotics, 
Stephen merges post-colonial and interpersonal narratives. Known for his photographic practice, he incorporates 2D media within the 3D space. His installations often include video, found objects, and materials of advertising. In 2013, Stephen's serious Kuhn project was exhibited at the Centre for Contemporary Photography, and later that year as part of Melbourne Now at the National Gallery of Victoria. His 2015 exhibitions include the touring group show Octoroon, solo exhibition re-specialises in authentic Aboriginal art at Footscray Community Arts Centre, and a collaborative work with Seeing Troll entitled Feeling Invisible Without the Lamb, exhibited both at Coolinghan Gallery and as part of Channel's Video Art Festival. Born in China, Xing Chou is an interdisciplinary artist. She focuses on subjects such as the religious practice and cultural traditions in the life of the nomad identity of individuals within the culture of globalization and the intricate relationship between the land and its rulers. Her artworks has been exhibited nationally and internationally, including exhibitions at Linden New Art, Northern Centre for Contemporary Art in Darwin, and Jogja Gallery in Jogjakarta, Indonesia. Seeing is the winner of Northern Centre for Contemporary Art Prize members exhibition in 2013. As a curator, Seeing has curated touring projects and exhibitions across Australia, including Art on Wheels in 2012 in Northern Territory, Territory Time um, 2010 for Next Wave Festival, and Territory Time Touring Project from 2010 to 2011 at Chen Contemporary Arts. Space. Please welcome our panellists tonight. Thank you, Nikki. Can everyone hear me? Great. Uh, hi, I'm Sarah, um, and I'd like to thank Nikki for inviting us, or me here, and everyone else. I'm sure is very thankful to be here too, and to congratulate her on the work that she's done for Channels and bringing this event together. Tonight, we're here to talk about Australian identities and placemaking, and we're sitting here at M Pavilion on the banks of the Yarra, not far from the Shrine of Remembrance, uh, not far from ancient gathering places of Indigenous people, uh, not from, far from a tent city, which was once sort of over there on the banks of the Yarra in the colonial era of Port Phillip. We're also not far from some of our major art institutions, uh, where images of place are captured and stored for collective memory and possibly for collective forgetting. Memory is a focus of our discussion tonight, but memory, as worked with and understood by three artists, Tony, Steve and Seeing, I'm going to ask them to discuss their work. Um, but first, I just want to say a few things about memory um, for a moment. I'm a historian interested in memory as a presence in the landscape, particularly migrant memory, but also how that intersects with histories of colonialism. One of my favourite books about memory in Australia is um, uh, about memory, history and place in Australia is um, Ross Gibson's Seven Versions of an Australian Badland. Um, it's an extraordinary historical road trip um, into the way in which place in Australia is haunted by colonialism, the sometimes um, savage disruption caused by nature and the sometimes equally savage destruction caused by humanity. It, it focuses on a stretch of the Queensland coast between Bundaberg and Mackay 
um, and it's uh, Gibson uses different forms of uh, remembrance um, to, um, uh, uh, to, to, to evoke place and to question the way in which we repress uh, our memory in the landscape. The repressions of histories of colonialism, of non-white migrants, of nature, of disregard and denial generally uh, as a symptom uh, of Australia or an Australian urge to banish uh, all forms of difficult sometimes and dissenting memories into the badlands of history. And he starts with his own memories of driving along a road as a kid with his parents and he very poetically refers to this as my private archaeology of broken things under a witnessing sky. So the book points to how we make conscious and, and, and conscious and unconscious choices about memory and what we forget. And it starts with personal memory. And I'd like to sort of start tonight with personal memory and to ask each of our artists here in their various different ways how they uh, use personal memory in, in their work. And uh, maybe I'll start with you, Tony, and we'll, we'll move along. Um, well, it depends. I mean, in regard to um, what I would say is most of my long fiction, I'm really not interested in any memories after the age of about 15. So um, I'm fixated with a period of my life, probably between the age of about 12 and 15, and particularly in relationship to the Yarra River. So that a lot of my work returns to that time period and returns to that location. So it's, I would say it's a very lucid memory, but it, you know, obviously it's very um, selective in particular. In regard to anything after that, I literally, as a writer, it would be more the case if I think there's something of value to write about, I might pick out a snapshot from the past, but I actually don't have very strong memories after that age. So that um, I talked about this last week. I think that um, I remember I was reading if you can't get a, and it's, it's a bit, it sounds a bit sort of fancy, but if you can't extract a poem out of a place after a certain amount of time, you should leave. And I was at Melbourne University for 20 years and I never had a poetic <laughs> thought. And um, it's an example of, I don't remember much about that place. And the other one is I lived in the suburbs for about 10 years and I'm not begrudging people who live in the suburbs, but I never found anything to write about. And I think the relative point is not that the suburbs don't have value, is that when you live there is really important. So I think, you know, I taught writing at Melbourne for years and kids who grew up in the suburbs had really in interesting things to say about it, really creative ideas to work around as writers and artists. But I didn't live there until I was in my 20s and I think it's all over by then as far as sort of your attraction to place. So my, my sense of memory and it's, relationship to place and identity is um, it's all about puberty basically. <laughs> all right, might come back and challenge some of your own memory about what you did at Melbourne Uni. Yeah, but you can, only, you can only say that because we're married, she's cheating. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Steve, I'd like to sort of bring you in here and get this man to shut up. Um, and really I want to move on and so ask you a little bit about how personal memory has worked through your, your work and your practice, Steve. Um, it's somewhat ironic I'm here talking about memory because mine's really shocking. <laughs> um, so in respect to that, I have some notes, um, Good. which I thought <laughs> would be um, more useful and, uh, yeah, less sort of babbling 
sort of nonsense. Um, but in, in regards to personal memory, um, I initially thought, well, what, what, what could we think of as personal memory? So I'll begin there. Um, concerning the idea of personal memory, I'm linking this to both the generally understood notion of memory, pr predominantly that of our own, the narratives we perceive in our minds, which we recall as prompted by external events and memories, perhaps, that somehow emerge inexplicably. I also refer to how this personal memory is somewhat of a nebulous character, with these memories able to change over time. Additionally, I feel personal memory also exists uh, beyond or external to ourselves in a couple of ways. Uh, in speaking of both the idea of the prompt and external memory, the photograph is a good example for me. Despite the ability to recall moments of the past, and as I've already said, mine is pretty bad at times, um, we have these records that prompt a memory to recall not only a narrative but resurface memory as a whole range of senses and emotions sometimes. I like to think of photographs as a memory within themselves, the personal narrative that we are somehow connected to, an extension of the self via a visual text, predominantly made of place and object. And regarding, I guess, um, some work that I've made and thinking about personal memory, I thought about Coolum Project. Um, and yeah, that's very much about place as well. So the photographic series Coolum Project for me engages with the idea of the photograph being an extension of self of personal memory, traveling to and responding to each of the five language groups of the Coolum as part of making the project. And in respect to this discussion, um, I saw it as a creation of personal memory. Um, whilst the pre-colonial history, and perhaps therefore memory, of my mum's side has struggled to navigate colonisation, I consciously made my own memories of place through that process. Here this suggests too that there is perhaps a pre-memory, just putting it out there, and that memory um, might also exist non-temporally. Uh, my second example was uh, regarding a, a series of portraits entitled T, T-E-A, uh, made in 2002. Uh, and that was inspired by my, fem uh, my memory of my family dinners when I was about 10 years old there was my sister, mum and dad. It was that very like nuclear family, the four of us around the table. Um, that memory enabled a comparison. So a comparison to my present experience of um, having dinner of the family. Uh, given that 30 years had passed uh, and also with my parents' divorce, uh, my dad's remarrying, the memory of tea uh, seems distant, but also here um, the present is revealed through that comparison. 
the present idea of my family incorporates additional cultures which I was acknowledging. And interestingly, the ritual of gathering that had seemed to be lost. In making portraits of each of my family members that I could reach over one day, I thought, keep it practical, I captured them sitting in a, in a place where they told me where they ate their dinner at some point in time. And I think of mum's then partner having dinner at about 11pm in his recliner. <laughs> um, so, and he was the only person not seated at some sort of table. Um, this present, reproduced as photographic prints, enabled a new memory and place. The work hung together in the same space enabled a reunion of sorts and a new place for tea. Each place so far, up to this point, an art space that, through the presence of these photographic texts, um, imbuing a, a new sense of place. So, um, yeah, no, I'm a fairly nostalgic person and, yeah, uh, practice a lot of self-reflection um, and yeah you know through that an, an interest in photography um, had considered how photography and you know how we might engage in in art in respect to place and um, personal memory um, might carry out. Mm. Thank you Steve there's a couple of things I'd love to come back to there but seeing I might bring you in we were talking before just about how important childhood memory is to you in your art practice. Would you like to sort of tell us a little bit about uh, memory sure. for you and how that's placed and where it's placed maybe? Yeah. Um, sorry, I didn't have a note, so I'm just like talk, talk off my head. Um, memory of place for me, it's... I don't know if that's really cohesive are inherent to the definition of memory, but um, as a migrant um, uh, living in Australia, so memory place um, kind of obvious um, is the memory of China, like I grew up in China. So this 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 place and um, that I no longer lived in. Um, but then it's really hard for me to pinpoint what does memory means. Um, for me, I think. Memory is everything I learned um, um, about everything associated this particular um, place um, or particular site. Um, for example, like um, in you know, um, especially if, uh, about this, the knowledge about land, about how we relate to this land. Um, I mean. I guess, you know, give you an example is living in Australia, I constantly remember um, how we um, how we associate with this, this Australian land, I apply this knowledge I learned before, which is I have to pull out my memory. What does that mean? Like um, what we eat, um, what, where we go, what, you know, those, those things I play, sort of place this, knowledge I learned back in home and try to apply to here and I try to understand how I relate to this land. So that for me, that sort of memory of place, this constantly um, reflect to this previous, the life before I live here. Another thing is um, memory place for me is um, it's a reminder of, um, of this absence um, myself in Australia. Um, so to remember um, China also equals the, 
the um, emptiness, you know, this my absence in Australia. Um, it's, you know, this, well, which is developed into this, my own interest, which reflect in my practice that I find out um, Australia is a multicultural um, society, or it's, you know, always identified as multicultural society. Um, what does multicultural mean? Does that sort of absence means part of multiculturalism? Um, and for me, you know, observe from my families and um, my life, you know, living here, and I find out there's lots of grey area that you can't really identify with any definitions. Um, for example, you know, if you go to a Chinese restaurant, they say it's Chinese food, but if you look at it, um, none of the ingredients really produced in China. You know, it's as an example that how do you define these things, and the taste is different. Um, to reflect that idea or concept, I um, made this video work. I documented my parents um, um, cooking a lamington. Um, at the time, they just arrived here. Um, and they didn't really know much about Australia and they tried to learn about what, where we come into. So um, I gave them a task. Luckily, they do know English a bit. So I gave them um, a recipe, uh, English, and say, this is Australian cake. Um, would you like to make it? Because they, they both really good at you know, cooking at home as Chinese food. And so um, that was their first time to bake and to sort of, I think that would be interesting to learn Australia, something about, you know, this concept of Australian by experiencing this cooking. So, um, and during the process, I didn't really give them any explanation, just leave them to explore and find out the solutions and what they, you know, what they're supposed to do. Um, well, which is I kind of expected what might happen, which is um, they use all their previous knowledge like to to try to make this happen. My dad used you know chopsticks to beat the eggs because they couldn't understand what is the the bitter, um, and then they couldn't you know they they just trying to use as much they they know about cooking to make this lamington, and and then till the end of this they didn't really know what lemon supposed to look like it. So they have a huge debate, what coconut, like, <laughs> like ingrate coconut should they get? Like should a, my dad like once thought that it should be coconut cream, like a liquid coconut. And because they never had this vision, what's the, so the whole process like exactly reflect what I mean. Like in the end, does that, is that, Lemington, like they, they totally like I can tell that it doesn't taste like Lemington at all. It's it's, but it looked like Lemington, and but it's not Chinese food either. So those kind of gray area. That's just one example. Um, I sort of captured and turning to the artwork. But there's a lots of example I find, this gray area. Um, what does that mean? I guess, it's probably more about you know like question about what multiculturalism mean. Uh, about, but it's also, I think that's also reflect into the memory place, the memory of this previous place. And when you take that memory to the new place, that sort of creates this, yeah, this, this unknown area. Um, I guess another uh, aspect um, for me, um, 
in my practice, I've reflected that memory place is the, uh, as I said, this this memory um, caused this kind of gap um, between me present to this land. Um, that's I find this gap also analog to present Australia to the land because I think what we experience right now in Australia, um, it's all imported culture. Like we live, we live all those infrastructures and culture. It's all learned, copied from other countries, and uh, really the connection to to the land and how we know about this land sort of lack of every in the everyday life. Um, the food, like a great example, is the food we eat. Bananas apparently is the most consumed fruit, but banana is imported from other culture. Like we all consume this little things it's all brought in but we but the yet we you know walk on this land what but what land can produce we don't really know so it's kind of yeah that's another sort of reflect to this kind of gap i find yeah and um yeah and and then you know i put into my work that um um i guess we can talk about our collaboration mm. with steve and uh, we made this um casting of uh, rabbit barrels and and um, projection of video work of highway that sort of you know highlights this kind of gap what we do with this mm. land and yeah so you've been creating some new memories with Steve I guess in a way and you too had a collaboration at the Cunahan gallery that's Steve do you want to tell us a little bit about how that came about and yeah sure um <clears throat> just trying to recall the title of the show. Both Sides of the Street? Was that the Both one? Both Sides so of the Street, straight. which was about um, First Nations artists and culturally and linguistically diverse artists collaborating to make a work semi, essentially sort of based on some sort of shared marginality, um, both, you know, on, you know, in being not so much part of the dominant culture that now uh, exists in, in this country um, and yeah you know given that I study with seeing and admire her practice a lot um, and you know in, in some way sense the commonality um, in our sensibilities I you know said hey how about we do this and we discussed it over um, a, a, a meal of some delicious Greek food at <laughs> now closed restaurant um, up in the Greek precinct there. Uh, we didn't eat any lamb, which is sort of where it gets, gets its title. Um, but, yeah, yeah, we... Yeah, in terms of how work can manifest, we essentially um, conceptualised it over that dinner and then it just sort of continued to grow, grow sort of almost organically um, to the time of it materialising, which... Uh, involved casting uh, rabbit holes on the banks of the Maribyrnong in Footscray. Um, no rabbits were harmed in the <laughs> making of the work. And and also, yeah, incorporating that, I guess, sort of in, in terms of, um, you know, what, what we're potentially trying to symbolise as, as part of that work, um, having a much more, uh, yeah, you know, sort of obvious... Uh, aspect to it which was 
uh, peak hour traffic is filmed from across the road down looking at uh, CityLink, yeah. um, which through the installation, these two components were merged. Um, so there's this duality there, which represents both of our respective cultures and experiences. Um, and also, I guess, this sort of disconnect that um, Singh was uh, somewhat alluding to before, in terms of this imposition uh, through recent history, uh, the, the the changes culturally here, um, you know, and I guess to to work with the the boroughs themselves, that's fairly sim symbolic, and you know the the activities that um, rabbits get up to in terms of their burrowing. Um, yeah, I think that's um, it's more about for me is reflect what's happening now. It's very much about present. Um, it will, it will become, like one summer May, it will become memories for somebody. Like for me, it will, now it's, it's because it's past tense, it become memory. Um, but for subject itself, I think maybe what I'm trying to say, like maybe by reflecting what's happening now, which in this way we're creating a new memory. Yeah. yeah. Perhaps I'm going to come back to a question at the end about sort of new futures or creating memories of the future. But I wanted to pick up on something which um, I think, Steve, you mentioned, which was this idea of pre-memory, but I want to turn that over to Tony. Because um, I know, Tony, that, you know, and I might be talking a little bit about um, uh, my understanding. wonder if you might sort of talk a little bit about the idea of what is possibly a pre-memory of place in Melbourne, which has come up in your new work, Ghost River, which is about um, the sense of, of landscape, a, pre -me a memory of the landscape from a very, very long time ago and how that has been f forgotten and remembered and in sense of your um, current interest in environmental issues, how that, how that, how that figures. Um, okay. Um, I actually don't think it's a... Well, I don't think it's as pre-memory or the forgetting of a memory. I think it's much more... Yeah, it's much more politically pretty straightforward, and that is the eradication of the a narrative, which then you can able yeah whether you create memories from or stories is and just to give context to what Sarah's talking about, in in a real sense is that the um, geology and geography of Melbourne is that we have this place called Port Phillip Bay, which is a very young um, bay in the terms of. Um, um, geological history and um, human history. So it's about 10,000 years old and it came out of the collapse of the Ice Age and prior to the um, collapse of the Ice Age, the Yarra River or the Birung River as the Wurundjeri would call it, um, the mouth of the river was at what we call the Port Phillip Head. So it was a much narrower um, outlet there and that's where the river ended. Now, when Europeans first arrived in what would become Melbourne, the Wurundjeri told, um, in fact, it was recorded um, by Joseph Tice Jellybrand, who was an early explorer in Melbourne. The Wurundjeri told Jellybrand of the, the old river that had been here before the formation of the bay, and that story was dismissed. And the point here is it's not forgetting the memory of it, it's actually saying, no, we, 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 we do, this story has no legitimacy in European terms, it has no legitimacy in sort of um, colonial um, 
narrative, so therefore we'll discard it. So the story was recorded as an Aboriginal myth and legend, which is to relegate it to, to folklore. Um, now, that story was carried on by Aboriginal people in Melbourne, so it wasn't repressed or forgotten. It was a, a very lively story, not simply a memory. And then um, in 2005, when the Port of Melbourne Authority decided that it would dredge the shipping channel in the bay so that we could get bigger tankers in here, so that if we, we have an oil accident, we'll get more oil, wash up on our shore. We, yeah, we want a lot of oil to wash up, not just a small amount. Um, they dredged the bay and took it down to 17 metres, or the shipping channel. And what they did before that was they got two geological, archaeological divers to go to the heads and to go to that crevice that they know had an opening and to discover how deep the crevice was at what was originally the mouth of the Birung. And unsurprisingly, the two divers went down to the original bed of the Birung River, which is about 102 metres down, and they were then able to deduce scientifically that that story corresponded with the age of the story that the um, Wurundjeri had told Joseph Tice Chalabrand. So. The point here, it's, it's not the same, I think, as, you know, I think we throw terms around like selective amnesia and memory and forgetting. You've got to remember this is a very proactive, concerted political act of forgetting. Um, in my work, yeah, when I worked on Aboriginal sacred sites and I talked about the erasure, I wasn't talking about the symbolic erasure, I was talking about the physical act of destroying Aboriginal places by painting over them, blowing them up and bulldozing them. So when we forget or we talk about colonial amnesia, it's not, um, I don't think it is a psychological act, I see it as a very physical, political act. So that um, I'm not that interested in, you know, sometimes the discussion of memory, it's a bit like the old sort of first year 101 psychology, is it a chair or isn't it a chair? To me, the notion of forgetting and remembering is a very conscious, political, physical act, not something to sort of muse around. That brings us on quite nicely to where I wanted to go, which is how the artist's work here kind of also speaks back to national memory in a way and about, so we have this thing, we a kind of a, a, a sense of national Australian memory, what is remembered, what is, the, what is the, 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 the main narrative which we're told about our identity and place in Australia. And both of your work, to the extent that I'm aware of it, speaks back to some of that, from perhaps to go back from both sides of the street. Um, could you perhaps, Steve, talk a little bit about how you see your work engaging with national memory? Moving on from the idea of personal memory <laughs> or seeing if you'd like to take that up first, perhaps? Oh, okay, I'll try. Um, I mean, I guess for me, like a national memory is more about learning what Australia is um, as a migrant. Um, you know, that's when you come to the, this, this new country, that's where you're trying to understand and gra grab a, you know, um, you know, little hint is like where I'm coming to. Um, well, I mean, yeah, I don't know. For me, um, my experience from what are my observation and Australia is, is covered by this kind of veneer, <laughs> veneer of those colonialisations. And um, um, yeah, that's, that's my personal, sorry. Mm. I'm just like, um, so yeah, um, as I said, like um, those, those, this land was um, constructed um, um, and covered um, with all this new development and this ideology of what country is supposed to be. This ideology is 
not derived from naturally from this land is actually imported from this um, well, English, <laughs> and, uh, and also migrant, and mm. as a as a place of place like homemaking place, and being decades, and everyone just trying to come here and make ideal dreamland, dream home, and therefore they um, at Australia allow people to do that. So they bring into um, materials and ideas, and trying to turn this place into something this place is not. So. Um, for me, yeah, that's form what Australia is now, but what really Australia is, I don't know, I'm still sort of like can't construct. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps tell us a little bit about a piece of uh, an artwork that you've made or oh, that, yeah. that perhaps kind of, um, you know, gives us an example of kind of how you might engage with these. Yeah, um, well, I um, um, part of my work is... Um, I make this a sugar uh, toffee sculpture. Um, I choose. Um, I did the research. I choose five um, uh, vegetable and fruit, um, which is successfully first time growing Australian land by um, uh, English people um, in Parramatta at the time. Because um, the, when they arrived, they struggled with food and they couldn't find a place like food and like. Um, yeah, to eat and survive. So they started to do this um, uh, experimenting of growing English um, food. So I chose those five of them, uh, which is carrot, um, um, pumpkin, um, spinach, um, cucumber, and um, there's one more. Anyway, so I chose mm. five of them and I made a real-life casting of them and mould, and then now I make a toffee sculpture out of it. So you will see this toffee fruits. Um, and I let that, I dye that into black and let that hang. And so the time, through the during time, the sugar drip. And I'll sort of let that drip into a native, a bouquet underneath. Sort of, you know, it's those kind of imported culture and dripping to, which is follow the natural order, it goes and it kills something. So what well, as a title I called um, Consequences of Success. So your success, everything has consequences, which is one of the, cons it can be good, can be bad, it's really subjective and really um, time-based, periodic sort of term. So sort of in that way, I'm just kind of let people or let myself contemplate what's happening now. Yeah, that's Thank as an example. Yeah. Yeah. Steve, how does your work perhaps talk back or to national kind of myths of place and memory? Um, sort of destroy, uh, yeah, it seeks to destroy it. <laughs> I guess in a way it's sort of like interesting to hear what you're saying, seeing is that, you know, from your experience, um, uh, coming into this place which you know has this sort of dominant um, identity nationalistic sort of um, thing that is in my opinion forced upon a lot of us and and it's very sort of exclusive uh, exclusionary otherwise um, I guess in terms of um, those that subscribe more so to that I, I seek to cause um, a cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. Um, 
when people might interact with my work, um, but perhaps engages on some other level um, from from the viewer or, or the audience of that work. Um, <clears throat> also said that um, <clears throat> I find a lot of art that engages with the narrative of identity. Um, <clears throat> with respect to my Aboriginality, mm. I feel it's my role to extend the notion of what it means to be Aboriginal in the present yep. as well. Um, in regards to pre-memory, um, which for some way for me is related to um, self-determination, not only in identifying collectively, but as uh, individuals also. Um, this concerns the ideas of national memory, placemaking and the construction of Australian identity, which in regards to the national is hev heavily imbued with a very stoic, romantic narrative. Uh, I seek to make the cherished less about homogeneity and more about uh, difference and, and through this a, a, a richness, because there is a, rif a, a, ri a richness in our difference. So, yeah, essentially I'm um, seeking to, I don't know, throw a, you know, I don't know, the, I can't think of the right analogy, but throw a spanner in the works, perhaps. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> um, Stephen, I'm just thinking, you're talking about um, your contemporary practice and uh, you were telling me a story just before we started about a current sort of walking project you're doing. Do you want to tell people a little bit about that, just what you're actually doing? Because I think that's really interesting. It brings together, again, it seems to be another bit of part of practice of, of working in this kind of grey area that mm. Seeing's talking about. Yeah. But, um, but also, yeah, tell, tell us the story about this walking project you're doing. Um. So the project's called Walking Slowly Downhill and uh, it's predominantly, well, if not completely conceived by uh, Domenico Di Clario, who um, is an artist and academic, who I hadn't met um, prior to the curator of the Mildura Palimpsest Biennale calling me late one night in a bit of a panic saying that Domenico's original support person had pulled out and can your ta car tow a caravan <laughs> and so I thought I'd give you know I'd give it a go and um, sounds like a great experience but Domenico walks about 15 k's a day I arrived back from our last leg which is probably the fourth leg and um, very much in terms of or as opposed to the the main sort of idea as to when we um, come across people in in all these different towns as to you know what what's the walk about oh you know who's he raising money for and, uh, you know, did he train? And he, he didn't train and it's very much about, for him, um, undergoing uh, something as a beginner because he, with his family, uh, came to Australia when he was six years old and, um, as he expressed to me, he otherwise um, had felt quite... Uh, that he had kept himself in a, uh, you know, culturally sort of safe safe place and um, you know much like a, a lot of our own personal journeys that in different parts of time we undertake things that are about uh, you know our sense of identities 
this for him is in regards to uh, his identity linked to the land that he's on. Um, and uh, not only uh, whether it be he's um, done some durational performances of playing piano, but uh, walking is important to him for a number of reasons. And in terms of this place as the land and, you know, how we predominantly connect to the land th through step by step by step. Um, just as part of the process, he sought permission from the traditional owners of the lands in which he'd cross, which um, was, was given to him. But, yeah, you know, it's been very interesting for me in being a person who identifies as Indigenous and a part of this, and maybe what sort of expectations there might be from an audience. And I actually noticed that I was really sort of thinking a lot about, oh, you know, the audience or, or even the curator is expecting some amazing thing to happen culturally. But as I've discovered, um, something is happening. It's still cultural as well, but it's very much um, set in, in the present. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very much set and sort of uh, has a, a, a real presence in each of these regional centres where a lot of people had um, settled and colonised at different parts of history. Um, and should I name the town or not? Um, but, yeah, in one library. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm in there and it was very interesting and, you know, people are proud of their place and, mm -hmm. and that's fine and they're proud of their history and everyone's own personal history in this place. Um, there's more than one place that calls it the Citrus, proclaims it's the Citrus capital of Australia, so I won't be naming it by saying that it calls itself that. But... Um, yeah, the library had this um, uh, embroidery piece of huge, beautiful embroidery that was uh, gifted to someone who came from Wales, who had like like this whole there was this whole sort of narrative and story about this person who had never even lived there, celebrated, and as it happened, he turned out to be a doctor in Darwin and got along well with the Chinese community and they gifted him this thing. Turns out his son moved to this town who was yeah, successful in growing oranges. So that's why that, that is up on the wall. And just hanging beneath that was uh, a reproduction of then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd's apology to um, who at, at the time the uh, you know, children who were brought to Australia without their parents, uh, which I imagine a lot of them had settled in that region. Um, so, you know, it was thought to be important that that's placed there. And it is because, you know, that would have been a terrible thing to go through and even to have memory of. Mm -hmm. But there was just the notable absence by the presence of that, by the mm -hmm. other apology that he gave, mm -hmm. um, and that these regional towns that I'm in, uh, coming across are sort of very uh, subjective sort, sort of time capsules as in this mm. example displayed by the, um, this library which is a very civil sort of, sort of space and, you know, in some ways reflects what it thinks is Im Im important. Mm. 
That's great. It's fascinating to hear that engagement. And this is a, a walking project al along the Murray. So, but Tony, walking's important to your artistic practice too, isn't it? I wouldn't call it artistic practice um, at all. Um, walking is very important to me. It was interesting though, um, listening to the conversation about the Murray. I did a six hour teaching um, gig today for Writers Victoria. Um, and it's relevant because it's mostly teaching non-Aboriginal writers who are engaged in writing projects at the moment that have either Aboriginal characters or are dealing with issues of colonial, post-colonial histories. And part of the discussion was about, you know, coming to terms with land and culture and history and memory, a lot of things we're talking about. But I... Um, I've changed my, I suppose, view on the value of walking over the years. And um, I'm interested in two aspects. And one is there, a guy that we both know, Nick Papa Dimitri, who's a, an English writer who calls himself a deep topographer. He has a wonderful book out, by the way, called Scarp, which is about walking around London. And Nick's a very particular intellectual and has a very particular focus on place. And he literally talks, talk about rabbits, he talks about burrowing into the depths of places and recovering its deep history. My sense is that I think you have to have a particular psychological and intellectual um, methodology or engagement with place to do that. So it's not something you sort of just take up by saying, oh, let's go for a walk and let's all dig into the landscape. He has a very particular psyche and insight. My sense is quite different in that um, I, 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 one of the things I like about walking is that whether it's done in isolation or with other people is the narrative aspect of it. So in, with someone else, it could be a conversation that you have while you're walking. It's sort of what you see around you, what you engage with, etc. As a solitary walker, often it's about, again, what, what you take in and what you obliterate as you're walking. But the point being is I don't think that that gives you any greater understanding of the place with any depth. But I don't think that's a problem. So that when, it's interesting and an odd thing to think about, I was thinking about Kyoto instead of Melbourne. Because when we went to Kyoto, it was a city that I loved walking around, I loved running around. I didn't come home from a week in Kyoto saying, I really know this place now, I really understand the Japanese culture. I know what it's like to live in this city. My engagement with it was very much at a surface, but it was a very strong emotional engagement. So I think that you can actually, through walking, you, you create a story or you're, you're part of a performance of a story being created in place, but you don't have to walk away from that or run away from that thinking, now I have a greater in-depth understanding. I think we're operating at different levels there. So if, if I was to think I want to know a place more in a more tangible, in a more fundamental way, I seriously believe it's a place that you've got to spend a lot of time in, a long time in, and that engagement's got to be about an absence of moving around. It's, it has to be about getting deeper. And it's why um, when we were talking before, or the notion came up about dominant, I, the dominant society is irrelevant to me, or it's almost inconceivable. Because I know Melbourne so strongly and I have a very secure sense of self and place, I don't con I'm not concerned about the dominant. There is no centre for me in this city. I'm in charge. Um, and it's only when I go elsewhere that I think, well, this is a different place, so I can only ever engage with this place 
at a surface level and be quite happy or satisfied with that. So that's really interesting. Then come, I want to come back to seeing, but then I might actually turn it over to the floor for some questions because we're both migrants here <laughs> and uh, I've been here quite a bit longer and very different sort of migrant story as well. But my sense of being a migrant is um, for a long time when I first came to Melbourne and when I've moved around is that I walk around places, I kind of map it to try and make sense of a place for myself. And when I go to live in new places, I was telling, seeing I once tried to move to San Francisco and I remember pounding the streets, it's a wonderful city, but trying to make sense of the place. Um, to try and get to know it and try and, and I think that sort of walking memory lies in your body but earlier this year I went to Nanjing for the first time which is Seeing's um, it turns out home yeah. place <laughs> is walking is walking important to you in your art practice or oh, in the yeah. way you work yeah yeah um, I really enjoy walking like I even like I would like to walk around Melbourne as well um, it's kind of one thing is to give you time, meditate a bit, you know, slow mm. down and you, you start to observe things you missed, you know. Um, and, you know, I'm totally great. Like when you go to a new place, that's the, the first thing you do to know what you, you get your orientation, you get the relationship between yourself to this place. Um, working is best, yeah, mm. way to do. Um, yeah, I, I, I think like, and then when you, you know, like you, when you walk, like it's, it's totally your own time and you have your own, you know, you, you have your own space, your own space, you have mental space to think. So, um, yeah, that's also like for me, that's the place I can let my thoughts go through all mm. wild and and mm. that's the, the most inspiration like time. And, I was yeah. just, I was kind of just sort of thinking about Tony's express sense of confidence in this place and sense of ownership and deep belonging here yeah. and yet I suspect you and I perform a more perhaps anxious ritual it's of trying to, to to understand. Yeah, I think, I, I don't know, like through the talk I'll just keep thinking this walking thing. Um, I just, maybe that's the wrong thing to think but I'm just thinking, you know, at the beginning when like those um, English explorer Oh, when they come here, they walk a lot, you know. Oh, it's like probably like um, tourists when you arrive in a new place that you have to walk to mapping it. So, but walk maybe itself is not political, but it's the, more, the mind behind it. It really matters, I think. And then for us, yeah, like it's... That's a vital point on the, the explorers and mapping because that is absolutely central because if you read like I've read extensively, if you want a very, um, if you haven't got much in your life, read um, Thomas Mitchell's three-volume history of southeastern Australia. What is interesting is that it's, it's absolutely central because rather than the notion that I don't know this place and I'll just be comfortable with what I don't know, mm. so when I went to Kyoto, I don't know it, but just enjoy it while you're there and explore and you know you're going to leave and go home so you're not anxious because yeah. you don't have to come to terms with it. Yeah. What people like Mitchell did is they couldn't partake in that because they have to be the they're the part of the empire they have to conquer land so therefore they create these fictions of land that replicate some sort of english sensibility and they obliterate or ignore any previous or existing stories of place that might be there and the way to think about it maybe 
we didn't get to talk about the patch of grass that the city of Melbourne killed off with the camp sovereignty protest, but it is quite interesting. One of the ways to think about symbolically that notion is that if I went to Kyoto and walked around and it would all be grass, there'd be no trace of me immediately afterwards. But if, I, if you do that each day or you keep doing that, you gradually wear a pathway for yourself into the landscape. And I think that's... When I talk about deep topography, the more you walk around a place, the more you start to wear a, a pathway for yourself. So if you're just there for a week or something, you can't expect that you know any anything fundamental about this place, but through the experience of walking the same places, which is about reiteration, then you can understand a place more fundamentally. Now, it's not surprising that a lot of migrants, particularly when I grew up in the inner city, you know, Greek and Italian migrants, they spend a lot of their time walking the streets. And I think part of it was that that trying to wear a pathway for themselves mm -hmm. into the local locality that they didn't have any insight into. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, I just want to check in with Nikki about timing. How are we going for time, Nikki? It's time for questions. We've got about 20 minutes left. All right, so we might turn it over for que uh, questions, and then if we have time at the end, I might get Tony to come back and perhaps tell a little bit of that story about um, this place he was referring to just near here. But let's turn it over to questions from the floor. Who who has a question? Oh. Come on, who has a question? Yeah. There's a question. <laughs> I don't really need this. Um, my question's for Tony. I was just wondering why you find the memories of your pubescent self so important in your writing oh that i mean that's really i mean it's um it's not about sex um <laughs> people who know my work well know that i've never written a sex scene and when i used to teach creative writing i told students the reason i didn't if i did it would go something like we went to the movies we went home we had a route so i i, I don't write sex scenes um i think quite seriously i think both the this is where place is important um i was very lucky when i was a boy from about 10 onwards to be introduced to the Yarra River. I lived in a housing commission estate in Richmond, so we had no, you know, you don't have any backyard of your own. And we spent most of our spare time on the river on weekends. And I think one of the great qualities of youth is that teenagers are remarkable and, you know, immediate pre-teenagers pre are remarkable for one, finding places that are outside the control of surveillance of adults and today, whether it be CCTV, police, parents, authorities. So the river gave a, created a great opportunity for teenagers to own a place in a way that was our own. So to do what we wanted to do outside the control of parents. You're also there, I think, in a, in a quite seriously impressionable time in your life so that I had great friendships on that river or great stories and experiences both with boys and girls who are great mates of mine and through that I was very fortunate to be able to engage with a place that quite honestly be, be, had became as a writer a real obsession for me so that I've written a lot about the river and each time that I've written about it I think I've written better about it or I've engaged more closely with it but never quite got closely enough. The other issue here that's relevant, and I think it's, it's telling, and I don't want to get too deep into the psychology of it, and I don't want to encourage people to go back to a school reunion necessarily, but I find it really interesting, and it comes into play with memory and your sense of yourself. I went to a school reunion a few years ago, which was, I think, 40 years after we'd been at school together, some 58 and 
these kids I went to school with when we were 12 to about 16. And one of the several remarkable things came out of it. One is, and this is a question about memory that's valid, why is it that some kids remember so things in such a lucid, clear way and you completely forgot them? They didn't make it up. They have a clear memory of something that you forgot. Why is it there are some kids that you remember with such a vivid memory and, again, other kids you forgot? But this is the real issue about your memory of yourself is so um, suspect. Whether you create a memory of teenage years, which is, I was a great kid, or in my case, I was a terrible kid. And seriously thinking as an adult, I must have been a bastard to teach. I must have been a bastard of a kid. I'm sure if I go back to this school reunion, people will think, oh, you were a bastard of a kid, all those things. But when you meet those people who are also from that same time, and they're also from a time of great impressionable exchange, it's remarkable the insights that they are able to provide into your former self that you have disposed of or selectively forgotten. So actually, I find that period of anyone's life quite fascinating. And being the parent of five children, I've been a close observer of my four daughters in particular going through those years and seeing how almost electric it is for them. Yeah, with my daughters, when I see them in that period of going through there, you can see their excitement of change. And I think that excitement of change and how you relate to the world around you, it's, it's so energetic. And so for me, it's, it's yeah, when people say, why do people get fixated with rites of passage, fiction, etc.? I think it's because it's a genuinely really rich period to, to, to reflect on. Yes, over here. Um, I was really interested in the idea that you're chasing this anxiety about trying to understand a place. And um, do you think you can ever catch up with that anxiety um, if you've come to, if you've come to, if you or if you've chosen to live in a place, or is the anxiety kind of essential for creating your work or your artwork? Or? For me. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I know. Yeah, I think that's. There's always anxiety. <laughs> um, um, I guess, you know, like, as a, you know, living this contemporary world, like we all sort of consider as a, like, global citizen, um, we, we all, you know, have a chance to travel to different places and have an opportunity to live in different, completely different uh, countries. And, um, and, and that sort of experience... In terms, like that's that's I think that's builds up a bit of anxiety, like anxiety of unknown, um, and um, and I guess that's when back to you know like memories, then that's that's kind of contribute that's anxiety, um, and um, I don't know that's kind of also some um, question or matters about finding your own identity, that sort of, uh, I, I guess when Tony said that sort of memory is subjective and that's kind of, I think that's also related to identity forming, like know who you are and you kind of, you know that through the memories you have and also the present. Um, um, yeah, I, I don't know, like uh, back to 
you know, this kind of anxiety, I think that's avoidable. <laughs> and, um, and that's definitely one of the, yeah, force into you can, you know, um, choose and turning to some creative, I think. <laughs> Does that answer your question? I think for me, it would never be, um, uh, you know, belonging. If, if, if we're talking about a sort of sense of, of belonging in a way, it, it, it can never be about one place and it can never be. And any idea that you could force it into being about one place um, would be completely false. And so in a sense, while I'd hope this sort of sense of anxiety about um, kind of not feeling like I'm fully in a habit here. I'd hope a sense of um, um, destructive or very negative or non-productive anxiety might go away. I'd always want to hold it in tension. As a historian, the kind of history I'm right, I'm interested in migrancy. I'm interested in holding the tension of, of, of I, like, I really like the sort of phrase migrancy of holding that um, in, and, and so when we, that when we write Australian history, we're not just constructing a history which is just about Australia, but holds the fact that um, the messiness of it and the tension about uh, the, the, the sort of the transnational element that holds other places here. Uh, that's why I love the work of, of um, when I think about the, the authors I know, and, and literature is a form I know probably better than, than artworks, but when is, is when I think about the, the authors like Christos Chalkas, like Arnold Zabel, people who are in, in, in constructing their sense of belonging in Australia, always remembering other places as well, and owning, have that, that sense of that, their, their, their belonging in, 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 in lots of sets of places as well. Hi, Sing. Hi. Hi. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your relationship to the national um, national memories in China and the history narratives in China and how you feel about them. Or good question. <laughs> um, well, um, I grew up in 80s, so back time at that time was really much about nationalism. Um, probably still is. Um, so, yeah, I feel like when I grew up, I had this really black and white idea what country is supposed to be, like that really strong image of identity. So China is this, this, this. So if you're not, you're not Chinese. And um, which is really interesting that that, that idea, um, understanding of country and culture completely um, challenged after I moved here, which is completely opposite. I find out Australian because there's no specific and um, set definition what Australian is. Like, that's it's Australia <laughs> because you can't identify it. It's, that's Australia. So, um, yeah, like in terms of when I grew up, that was really communist, was, was you know, black and white, and as I said, um, what is capitalism, what is, you know, um, socialist, and um, it, that's really fine definitions and draw the differences. And um, and then we had, you know, we were told you, probably that's the kind of old traditional way of, you know, nationalism, you know, have, you know, we have really big proud to be, you know, citizen of Chinese, you know, like, um, and we shouldn't 
we shall not do anything harm or, you know, um, pollute this this fame. <laughs> you know, you know, like it, it, that's a feature like of what you, your behaviour, like you, when you go overseas, if certain things you should say, certain things you should do, you know, or everything's about concern about not yourself, but also this country behind you. So that's kind of, I guess that you know when when I learned when I when I grew up, that's sort of feeding to. Um, yeah, I was fed into that sort of ideology. Um, I guess, yeah, like, it's probably still, you know, those kind of ideas still carry on being contemporary China, which is, yeah, kind of made, like, always sort of still, uh, you know, um, push me to question what, sort of that's kind of, areas are from and it sort of make me question a lot about what what those those terms mean what does Chinese mean what does Australian mean what does English means and those 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 descriptive terms does does that represent what does it represent basically um, yeah does that right? <laughs> yeah Any more questions? Yeah. Yes, and mic. Yeah, let's. We'll get the mic. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, um, Stephen. I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit more about your, um, I don't know, description or understanding of what pre-memory is. Yeah, when I um, I guess came up with that. Uh, term just this afternoon in writing my notes. It, it, it's <laughs> almost theory. like, it's like, um, what do I want to remember in, in terms of the example used, which was creating photographs um, of an encounter with a place that, um, you know, what we carry with with us is our own sensibilities and. Uh, way we per perceive things. So, essentially, what I think I'm trying to construct is the idea of, um, <clears throat> you know, our, our, our memories uh, are otherwise um, predetermined to a degree from who we are, and that's what's come before us um, as individuals and, and even perhaps collectively. Um, so, yeah, and I was just interested in the idea of um, almost the script of history. Is it already written to a degree? Um, is there the possibility of what we understand as memory having a basis in the future as well? Uh, I reckon there's... A can you do people know your work, your Footscray work? Uh, Could you I just, don't know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's really interesting while you're talking. Could you just briefly tell people what it is, and then I'll tell you what my response was. Sure. To it, which, the, in a way, will you t tell people what the work was? <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's called the biggest Aboriginal artwork in Melbourne Metro, um, which is a text-based work, um, and I also feel it's very much a performative work as well in that uh, on, on the side of a former IGA um, in Footscray's main street, 
IGA shipped out, they removed the text IGA. So it used to say the, the biggest um, IGA in Melbourne Metro. And I, I, I've lived in the suburb for quite a while and am quite fond of the area. And, you know, I guess, um, yeah, you know, uh, this richness that I spoke of before. And it was just sort of begging in terms of this space that, that was there. Um, to, to be filled and yeah I was much more you know playing with the idea of what what's Aboriginality what's Aboriginal art mm-hmm. um, and w- in working with text and also in working with the, the materials of advertising um, and also as I as I believe a personal ethos of recent times is to challenge yourself mm. um, that I'm like okay so committed to yeah making some vinyl really, lettering it's really big. big yeah so what happened to me is so you put up last year yeah uh, december of last yeah. year yeah so. and th- when you go to the footscray now there's a lot of shop fronts closed down a lot of graffiti and yeah businesses come and go so i start a new job out there in july uh, this research position on on climate change that i've got and as you do when you're in footscray to go to savers at lunchtime so i walk down from vu to go to savers and i walk around the corner and i see this you know, grandiose statement yeah the biggest aboriginal artwork so talking about sort of pre-memory or the narrative that your provocation was so strong that i thought oh here's some fucking wanker who has just <laughs> appropriated aboriginal art and they've opened this store and now look it's already closed <laughs> And then I, I'm going past there for like this. I didn't know you did the work until Sarah told me the other night. Okay. I'm going past there to go to Savers once a week to pick up a bargain. And I think, oh, look, this is a disgrace. They still haven't relit the place. Someone's graffitied over the front. It's, you know, vandals are at it. And my whole sort of narrative of it that I brought up was based on what I'm working on at the time was about the appropriation of Aboriginal knowledge. Mm. So what you provoked me to think about is this whole history of this place, which, of course, while it exists um, intellectually and there are examples of it, that place where you stuck that text, it was just an IGA. And all (laughs) all the time I'm thinking there's some carpetbagger who ran a shop in there and he was ripping off Aboriginal people for years (laughs) and look at it, it's a disgrace. They're in the city. <laughs> uh, no, I didn't say that. Um, or the National Gallery. Yeah, no, it was very much a provocation, you know. Yeah. It was sort of like asking a question that perhaps we can't get an answer to. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's such a. I mean, seriously, because when Sarah told me, she said, Oh, there's uh, um, one, of, one of Stephen's artworks in Fuchka. I said, Where is it? She <laughs> said, Oh, and she showed me the picture of it. I said, That's an artwork. I thought it was some bastard who'd been written <laughs> off the community. So it's fantastic. It's a great provocation. <laughs> See, Ying, you wanted to come in there. I was just saying that um, I always also have a really strong response to that work as well. Like, um, I, I, I never told Steve about it, but um, I don't think I don't think that's <laughs> I don't think that's well happening some days. So I might just say verbally, just imagine. Like I always want, because that work right now covered by graffiti, so mm. I guess feel like public space. People just because Steve will sort of let them, you mm. know, be public, so mm. let that, you know, be vandalized. And so I always want to go there one night and um, spray that made in China. <laughs> <laughs> Here you go. That's my from my grand sort of 
prospecting. <laughs> I think all that's kind of quite a good point to end on, actually. I think we've got some kind of really nice group of provocations and I think memory should be provocative. Um, I'm not sure what the official way we want to close is. I know something quite dramatic is going to happen with the roof soon, so I'm, I'm wary that we finish before that. But um, I'd certainly like to thank seeing Steve and Tony for their great insights this evening. I'd like to thank Nikki for inviting me to be part of this because it's great. But Nikki, maybe you have some official closing things you need to say before we put our hands together for these three. Um, not really official, <laughs> but um, thank you for um, joining us today and um, thank you for Sarah for facilitating and all our panellists to be here today. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.